Samuel chapter 7, um, reading from the NIV. This is the passage. We'll kind of look in a little bit of detail a little later on in the, in the address. But uh, if you want a Bible and want to follow it, I believe it might be on the screen. But uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, raise your hand if you want a Bible. One of the stewards will be able to give you one, hopefully. And uh, we'll read from 2 Samuel 7, beginning to read at verse 1. It says, after the king was settled in his palace. Now, you see, the king here is referring to King David. Remember last week, Michael um, told us the amazing love story of Ruth and Boaz. And uh, it climaxed, didn't it? This, their, their children coming in that line, that lineage with the tribe of Judah. And David was one of their great-great-grandchildren. And so some time has gone on. We'll explain that a little bit later on. After the king was settled in his palace. So David is in his palace. And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. And he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. So that ark of the covenant that they had been carrying through the desert time. And been in this, what they called the tabernacle, wasn't it? This tent where... God's presence, in a sense, was felt and worshipped. The glory of the Lord came down in that place. And there's now David in his palace and, in a sense, God in his tent. And Nathan replied to the king, verse 3, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell me, my ser- tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. Remember how that sounds just a bit like the covenant we had with Abraham near the beginning of the year. For those who are visiting, we're doing this series called Knowing God's Big Story. We're going from Genesis through to Revelation and into eternity. Right? Won't take that long. <laughs> but we're just seeing God's big story. The purpose is God. It wasn't God, you know, man didn't fall into sin and then God had to make up another idea. How are we going to save him? Now, from the beginning... God had a plan and it's been worked out through scripture, it's been increasingly revealed step by step and here we are, we've got echoes of that other covenant now God is saying to David through the prophet Nathan, I'm going to make your name great verse 10 and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they have a home isn't that recollection again of that same covenant, a place you know, God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a great name, I'm going to show you a land that is got, you know, it's going to be yours. You're going to be a blessing to the nations. Right, a home of your own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will oppress that well sorry, will not oppress them anymore. 
as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, euphemism for being dead, (laughs) I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. You will come from your own, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. So may God bless to us this morning both the reading and the preaching of his most holy and infallible word. Well, we're in this series. For those who've been following this series, we will have seen how God's people, chosen under Abraham, have uh, come under God's rule through Moses and uh, experiencing God's blessing, again, in that mosaic time with the presence of God, his glory in the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, they've been taken into the land that God had chosen for them through Joshua conquering and being victorious. This is all part of God's great redemption plan, salvation story that is being portrayed in the Bible. And we're familiar with this uh, this graph in that sense. You know, this picture where God created the top part of the left-hand side here, your left, my right, Um, you know, at the creation. Everything was wonderful, but then man fell into sin. And we've seen over the generations through these chapters of the Bible, as God prepares and makes his plan and fulfills what he's doing, his purposes are being worked out. Chosen in Abraham, the law and the tabernacle through Moses, coming into the land, victory through Joshua. You know, it wasn't all plain sailing. When you look at that, the graph just goes up. And it's just like, oh, it's just, everything just got better and better. Wouldn't life be like, nice if it was just like that? But as we saw, we saw it when the, the period of the judges, they go round and round in circles. Disobedience, obedience. Disobedience, obedience. 
They saw it earlier before, they had 40 years, a whole generation wandering in the desert because they didn't have the faith to go through and see God's victory. And in fact, you know, that wonderful story last week from Ruth and Boaz is kind of a little oasis of something beautiful. Thank you, Michael, for sharing with that. <coughs> that happened in the period of the Judges. There's a phrase that comes in the book of Judges several times, I think it's four or five times in the whole book of Judges, and it actually is the last words of the book as well. It ends like this. It says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what seemed right in his own eyes. That's the picture where actually things are gone chaotically wrong. And you've gone through this cycle of obedience and disobedience, and you've lost sight of God, and you've not got a strong leader to lead you back again to the ways of God and you're not feeling repentant and everybody wants to just do their own thing. You know, do you know actually what it's like as a family? You ever sat down at breakfast on a Saturday morning? When we had four kids, well, we still do have four kids, but you know, <laughs> but, uh, might think when we're gone. But, you know, you know, some, um, you know, and you sit down as a breakfast, what should we do today? And you think, why did I say that? <laughs> you know? And so you kind of think there's six people around the table and suddenly there's ten opinions. <laughs> there's ten different options. If you have that in your family, Joe, you know, oh dear, I wish I'd never asked. Because now whatever I say we're going to do, you're never going to give anybody happy. And actually the role of a parent sometimes gives some leadership, isn't it? There were no leaders in Israel at that time of any substance. When there's no leadership in a church... It can just patter around in a way, but it'll be rudderless in some sense. You need to pray for our church leaders, for our elders and our deacons, our ministry stream leaders. We need leadership that is going to lead us in godly and righteous ways that put forward the kingdom of God. I think I said a few weeks ago, everything in a church will rise and fall on the quality of its leaders. It was true of Israel in a sense, it's true of, of any church in any generation and we need to be a people that are not saying bigging up the leaders, don't say that, but actually we need to pray for them and say that as they keep their eyes on God. Because as we saw in those period of the judges, it says, as a leader, as a judge came along and said, let's call on the name of the Lord, then the nation changed. We need leaders in our land, in our nation at this time, who will lead us in godly ways. That's why we're told to pray for those in, who are kings and men and women in authority. We should pray for them. So that's what's needed. It was a difficult time at the end of the Judges. You remember way back in Genesis when Jack preached for us from Genesis 49 that Jacob had blessed Judah, telling him that one of his descendants would rule over the nations. In other places, the book of Deuteronomy in particular, God said that when, when you have a king, he's not to take the place of God, when you have a king, it's not, it's not, doesn't, it doesn't shift God out of the scene and then put a king on the throne. A king is to lead the people just like a leader, as a pastor, or as an elder. It doesn't take the place of God, but to rule under God so that we're all together in it. And he should rule the people as he submits to God. In other words, God would rule his people by means of a king. And the last and greatest of the, of the judges is a man called Samuel. And we've jumped several hundred years in a way to get to this point. And uh, the people of Israel come to Samuel 
a judge and a prophet, and they start demanding, give us a king. And this is the way they put it in 1 Samuel 8, 5. Give us a king such as all the other nations have. And that angered God. You think, why did it anger God if he'd actually already said, when you have a king? But it wasn't the fact that they were asking for a king that angered him. It was their motivation for wanting a king so that we would be like other nations. So that we're just like, you know, did you ever get that pressure? Talk to parents here. You get that pressure from your kids? I know the teens are in with us today. (laughs) You know, why do we do this? Other families don't. Why can't we be just like them? Because we're different. We're Christians. And there's certain things we put as a priority. And we need to. And you see, here was a nation. Give us a king. We want to be just like everybody else. They were supposed to be different, set apart. God's people in God's land, enjoying God's blessing. Waiting for God's king. (laughs) Well, God gave them what they wanted. And they had Saul as king. And this was a disaster. I'd love to spend time going through the life of Saul, but we haven't got the time in this series to do that. Because there's so many lessons to to learn from that. It's such a disaster because he is persistently rejecting God, being disobedient to God. He's supposed to be God's leader. And the nation is not blessed because of his leadership. And so God takes away the kingdom from Saul. He's still on the throne for quite a number of years. He's still king, but he's got no kingdom. No one's really following him anymore. He's outside of God's blessing. And then the focus becomes on this man called David. And all of us are familiar in one way or another, even if we've not got a particularly you know, vibrant church background, we're familiar with David the shepherd boy, aren't we? And God chooses this little son of Jesse, the one that actually even his father didn't bother bringing in from the field. And God says, no, this is the one who's going to be king. And David is anointed to be king. And, and in a way, 1 Samuel 16, right the way through, right through 2 Samuel as well, is all about the rise of uh, the throne of David over Israel. <clears throat> God's chosen one, anointed by Samuel. The anointing of David, in a way, anticipates the founding of what we call the Davidic dynasty. Right? And it's a crucial event in the whole of you know, salvation history, this redemption plan that God is bringing to the world. It's crucial in our understanding of the Old Testament concept of Messiah. We often talk about it. I used to live in a very Jewish neighbourhood in North London, and be, when you witness them, they say, well, we're looking for Messiah. And I would want to say, Messiah has come. <laughs> Messiah, you see, the, the, the Hebrew word for Messiah mean, is anointed one. And interestingly, when you get to the New Testament, Christ means the anointed one. So the Hebrew and the Greek, what you see here is David is the anointed king. He is God's king for the throne of physical Israel. Jesus is God's king, king of kings, 
for a new kingdom that will last forever. You see that Messiah, that idea of Messiah, grows out of this idea that there is a righteous king who would be like David. My Jewish neighbours would often talk about the, the, the pinnacle. If you remember that graph, it peaked in a sense. David on the, as, the, as the king. And they would still go back. They would say, right, we, we, we're looking for the establishment of a, of a kingdom and of Israel like it was under David. And here we saw what you got. This is king who's anointed by God, his own Messiah in a sense. And uh, his rule is later used by the prophets to picture the coming of a greater kingdom, an eschatological kingdom. That, just, that word just means the future in a sense. Right? Something still to come. And that's what we've been seeing in the whole series, isn't it? There is something greater still to come. All these things become pictures and images and shadows of all the things that are greater to come. The future king. We'll particularly see some of those when we look in some of the prophets in a few weeks' time. 1 Samuel recounts David's rise in popularity. He defeats a giant. Shall I do a test? What was the giant called? Well, one knows. Well done. (laughs) Yeah, of course we know. What was the best bit of the Goliath story? Chopping his head off with a sword. Uh, You see, all the children's stories miss that bit out. (laughs) It's in the Bible. My boys always used to argue, Dad, they're missing the biggest bit. Get his sword and chop his head off. (laughs) It's just the family I grew up (laughs) with. Anyway, David defeats Goliath. Actually, Saul now knows. He becomes jealous of David. It's chapter after chapter where David is being hunted by Saul. Saul wants to kill him. And, um, you know, it's difficult times, but Saul, uh, sorry, David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. And later on, we'll, we'll, we'll soon we know that David is not perfect. I mean, he, said he grossly sins, doesn't he? Committing adultery, committing murder, all sorts of stuff be after God's own heart was because he, there was a spirituality about him that wanted to break down and weep and repent and come back to God and say, I'm wrong. I'm so sorry. David honoured even King Saul, who was, as my pastor used to preach, yesterday's man. After the death of Saul, the men of Judah want to anoint David as their new king. And what follows is a big long war between the house of David and the house of Saul because the commander of Saul's army had anointed Saul's son, Ishbosheth, or something like that, Ishbosheth, um, as commander. And again, it's just a nasty war. Eventually, Abner changes sides and joins with David. And David becomes this king of Israel and he defeats his enemies and um, eventually he defeats the Jebusites and takes capture the city of David and it becomes called Jerusalem in fact the chapter before the one we're looking at in 2 Samuel 7 and chapter 6 the Ark of the Covenant that had been in a tent out in someone's backyard is brought into Jerusalem 
Jerusalem becomes the religious, spiritual, political capital of everything that God uh, that, that uh, Israel represents. From that point on, this Davidic kingdom in this great city of Jerusalem. See, and a key event in this redemption story is what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7 because this records the events surrounding the establishment of what's called the Davidic covenant. We've seen the Abrahamic covenant, we saw the Noah covenant, didn't we? We saw the Abraham covenant, we saw the, the, the covenant uh, with Moses, we've seen this one with David. There's lots of them. God building his picture. We're people now of a new covenant. We're going to share this bread, this bread and this wine in a few moments because we're new covenant people. God has been constantly revealing, giving his promise after promise, building on it, making clear what his plan is. David had captured Jerusalem and brought the ark into the city and God had given him rest from his enemies. Verse 1 in chapter 7 there. And at this point David calls Nathan the prophet and expresses his desire to build a house for God, a permanent temple instead of a tent. Sounds a good idea, doesn't it? God's response to David is found through the rest of the chapter, and that's what we're going to look at in a moment. God reminds David that since he brought Israel out of Egypt, not David, since God brought Israel out of Egypt, he has moved with them wherever they went. He has quite been happy to move in the tent, hasn't he? This Ark of the Covenant with the glory of the Lord upon it. Symbolic of the presence of God. And he's been quite happy to be there. That has been, you know, his presence had been with the nation all that time and brought them rest from their enemies. And it's here that God promises in this covenant in David's David. God promises to establish the kingdom of David's offspring. He's, he promises that David's offspring, his son, that will be Solomon, will build a house for God. And they will establish David's kingdom forever. It's as though David has this dream and he says, Lord, I want to build you a house. And God says, you know what? I'm going to build you a dynasty. And there's a play on words in the Hebrew between dynasty and house. <laughs> They're very similar. You think you want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. One that's going to last forever. But Solomon will build the physical temple. And God says to him, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And God warns that he will discipline David's offspring if he commits iniquity, if he sins and goes off and does wrong. Then as a son he will be disciplined. He also promises that actually though, even in that discipline, the steadfast love of the Lord will never cease to be with your offspring. <clears throat> I will never remove it the way I removed it from Saul. God finally promises David your house and your kingdom 
shall last forever. Your throne will be established forever. And then in 2 Samuel 7, verses 18, through to the, re- the rest of the chapter is the re- a record, we only read a few verses of it, of David's prayer of gratitude. You see, a lot of prophecy, uh, sorry, I should say, like a lot of prophecy, this particular covenant is prophetic, but it applies on two levels. You know, like it is when you look at a, 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 a landscape, a mountain scene, you see some mountains in the foreground, and you see another mountains in the background. You know, on the piece of paper, they're just one overlapping over the other. In reality, there is miles and miles between them, isn't there? But when you've got it in perspective like that, that's just one in front of the other. And you see, that's how prophecy works in a sense. There is some things that will be interpreted in the immediate future, and there'll be other things that will be applicable for the distant future. And as you read this, you see, well, yes, what God is talking to David about is his greater son to come. His kingdom will last forever. It is in the immediate future, in a sense, because David's offspring, Solomon, will build the temple. And actually, he will be disciplined because he goes off the rails as a son. But in the distant future, it's not talking about a king on a physical throne. It's talking about Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the king of kings, David's greater son in the line of Judah, who would build a spiritual temple. Not a physical one, but a spiritual one. In fact, he would be that temple. Remember in John chapter 1, what did it say? The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That word dwelt is a translation of the word tabernacle. The Word tabernacled amongst us. He was with us. Here was this kingdom, this temple, this presence of God being built in our presence. He refers to himself and he's referring to the kingdom that he will build. Well, the Davidic covenant had been anticipated, as I said before, in God's covenants with Abraham and um, with Moses. I kind of, you know, not going to go into too many details there. Just to kind of, you know, to see that actually, you know, what, he, what you've got here is in the Abrahamic covenant, there's a promise of the realm and a people for God's kingdom. In Moses, it's going to be God's rule. God's law for the kingdom. And then with David, here is God's man for the king, the human king for the kingdom. There was to be a picture of this, our future kingdom to come. God's creational purpose is established. See, what was physical in the Old Testament is a spiritual reality in the New Testament. And a major emphasis of this covenant is the idea of perpetuity, of it lasting forever. David wanted to build a permanent house. God instead promised that he would establish a permanent dynasty for David. Well, if you know the history, you'll know that actually after Solomon, or even during Solomon, it all starts going downhill again, doesn't it? If you remember that graph, it peaks with David... The kings that follow start rebelling and start following the other nations split in two. It all goes pear-shaped. Forever 
is a word that you'll see eight times in those verses in 2 Samuel 7. That's how important it is. I want you to emphasize, emphasizing this, what I'm saying is going to last forever. David's physical throne didn't last forever. But the line of David, through the line of Judah, there we will see Christ coming, won't we? when we get to that genealogy in Matthew. Jesus. Jacob had prophesied the scepter would belong to the tribe of Judah, that symbol of this rule and reign. Yes, it was David in one sense, but it pointed forward future to Jesus. And as actually the kingdom begins to fall apart, uh, you know, we find that actually the prophets pick up on these promises to David. And instead of kind of they're looking at themselves and they'll be kind of thinking, well, where's this kingdom now? What's happening? And they become prophetic messages still looking for this greater kingdom to come, this greater king to come, the future hope that is to be established. And so those messianic prophecies will be spoken about and we'll look at some of those in a few weeks' time. In a way, with the Davidic monarchy, God's kingdom came as a reality, but only as a picture of what was to be, something greater was to be. And so, here we are in this scene. I hope you've just, through that, got the history of it. I want to just concentrate on a few a, a message that I believe God says in this passage as well. David is found meditating on the Lord, looking at his law, and he's at peace, he's brought the ark into, the, into Jerusalem. And in a way, this dream was born in his heart. He wants to build God a permanent house. He's living in luxury, feeling guilty. Look at me, I'm living in a palace and God lives in a tent, so to speak. Not that God really lived there, <laughs> just symbolic. So he has a dream, this idea in his heart. I want to build God a permanent dwelling place. The only problem is, is that dream from God? See, there are people in this room who have heard God say no to certain dreams and desires. You see, David had a dream, he has a desire, I want to build something for God. But what is it, was it from God that prompted him? And we live in a place where all of us make decisions day by day. Young people make decisions about universities and careers and future. We make the same, don't we? Where are we going to live? How are we going to live? How do we raise our family? Where we, what job should I have? What path should I take? I want to do this for God. Should I involve myself in that? And we have great desires, but are they all from God? Well, you know how I think sometimes. If someone says to me, the Lord has told me this, I can't argue with that, can I? So, oh, pastor, you know, the, the, God's told me I should do this. Well, what do you want my opinion for if God told you? You know, who am I to argue with God? The question is, was it God? Well, David has that in a sense. You know, and there's some here in this room and you have had a great 
burden put upon your heart, a great desire, a dream. You wanted to, I want to serve God. I want to be a preacher. I want to be a missionary. I want to have this career. I want to be at a support mission. I want to give funds to raise money. I want to do this. I want to be involved in that ministry. You have great desires, things that you want to do for God. And they're good. I want to honour God. But sometimes those things that you have wanted to do just have not worked out. It's as though God has said no. That's not what I have planned for your life. I want you to take a different path. There are others here who will hear God say no in the future. And so I want you to be prepared. So what do we do when God says no? I think actually David shows us what we're supposed to do. So this first thing, the first point I want to bring out is here is David's desire. And it was a good desire. He wanted to build God a place that was befitting the majesty of a holy, awesome God. And he makes these plans for this amazing temple. In 2 Chronicles 6, David is is praised by God for having such an idea. We read in there in 2 Samuel 7, those first verses, Nathan the prophet kind of just says, go with what's on your heart. Go with it. Right? Seems good to me too. You see, David isn't asking for anything. He just wants to give God something. He wants to give God back for everything God has given him. We could never possibly repay God for what he's done for us. In fact, he never asks us to. But there should be within our own hearts that seed of gratitude what someone calls the attitude of gratitude, isn't it? Are we grateful for what God has done? I am glad that I'm here today, not because of material things, not because of relational things, not because of position of of leadership or anything. I am glad to be here today because Jesus is my Saviour. And that's enough. David doesn't have ulterior motives. He wants God to be exalted and magnified. I know what it's like to have a dream. I'm going to serve God in this. I really want to do this, Lord. And the circumstances come around and it doesn't seem to happen. You been there? Let me say it's good to have dreams like that. It's good to aspire to serve the Lord. It's good to be ambitious in those dreams. But dream big dreams for God. The question is, make sure it's God that's leading you in this. Nathan encouraged him. It sounded good. In fact, it has the earmark of God's impression upon it. However, when David had that idea, it really wasn't the Lord leading him. Nathan the prophet goes off to bed that night and God speaks to him, doesn't he, and say, go to David and say, no, you're not the one. 
You're not the one. You know how important it is to, uh, to interpret impressions from God? Or dreams from God? Let me tell you, when I was a pastor in the East End of London, <coughs> there was a, lo- a lady in my church. She came to me and, Pastor, I really feel God's, God's told me I am to marry this person, this other man in the congregation. Kind of my eyes rolled at the beginning because I knew that he just proposed to someone else. (laughs) So I'm kind of thinking, okay, if God is leading this, either he's got engaged to the wrong one, or she's not heard from God. And a very young man, I didn't know what to do. (laughs) I just went home and prayed. (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) Um, But as the time went on, he got married to the other lady. And the woman who had this dream, she was devastated. She was convinced, God told me I was going to marry you. And as I explored that with her, we saw that she had dreams. She'd seen pictures where he had been at the altar and she thought it was to her. She'd made an assumption it was her. She didn't actually see her with him. She just thought, it's my dream, it must be me. And when we were able to pray with her and realize that actually she hadn't seen herself marrying, she'd made a, a leap <laughs> in her mind. That brought great relief, great change, and praise God that she's you know, over that. And this man is happily married to this other woman, you know, as far as I know still. How important it is to discern, is it God speaking to me? Should I tell you another incident? Some of you were here in the church some years ago and we went through a really difficult phase, didn't we? Some events happened really hard. We never want to go through that again, do we, in one sense. You know what happened when that kind of peaked in one sense when someone went to prison? My wife and I were on holiday in the Isle of Wight and another church phoned us and sort of said, um, I don't know if they phoned us or they got in contact somehow. Would you consider becoming a pastor with us? And I kind of thought, hallelujah. <laughs> yes. I mean, this has been a time when the elders were exhausted. It was a difficult time. I'm not going to go into these, but if you knew it, you know how difficult it was for not just me, but for everyone, particular people who were more involved in their, with their families. And I kind of thought, great. God's got something else for me. Met with the elders. Got on really well with them. I thought, oh, this is brilliant. Let's get out of Weymouth. <laughs> you know, let's move. A lot of people think of that, don't they? When you think, oh, it's difficult, let's go somewhere else. And a door half opens. And then they asked me to come and preach. As I just said, like I did when I first came here, I'll just preach what you're preaching, your series you're going through. So they said, we'd like to preach from Esther for such a time as this. And as I prepared that sermon to go and preach there, God spoke to me for such a time as this, you're still here. It's not always the answers you want, is it? When you think there's a way out, there's something different, there's, there's a dream to do something else. But if we truly listen to God, it may not be the thing we want, 
but it's what he wants. And I bet there's people here today and you are going through or have been through things and you can echo that yourself so many times where you have thought, I wanted this, but this happened. And the crucial matter is to accept what God is saying. Well, back to David. Thank God for a desire to serve the Lord. We simply need to be sure that our dreams and desires are part of God's plan for our life. And that's what David needs to find out. Well, David is denied. God spoke to Nathan and, and told him, go tell David, this is not the plan I have for you. You know, I had a t- you know I've, I've got some sabbatical coming up. hope to go on sabbatical from the end of August for a, a while. About 16, 17 years ago, I had a sabbatical, and I was in the very north of Scotland. And it was actually this passage that God spoke to me about that told me I had to leave my last church. <laughs> we were in a place where we had we'd planted various congregations, and we were looking at starting another one. And um, God just said to me, you're not the one to do this. I've got something else. And as the weeks went on, we realised that we were going to be coming to Weymouth. I thought I was going to stay in London the rest of my life. I love London. But God brought me here. I'm still here. (laughs) Sometimes you have to accept, isn't it? The thing sometimes that you want is desire. I'm going to do this for you, Lord. But he says, no, but I want you here. And it's not necessarily the thing that you want. But actually when we learn to accept, this is where David, this is the the lesson I want to really show from here. Here's David, he wants to do this from God, but Nathan comes back and says, no, it's not supposed to be you. And through this prophecy, you see, David is reminded, God reminds David, I took you from being a shepherd boy and brought you to being a ruler. Who are you to say what you will do? It's all about what God says. We used to have a poster in my last church. Massive words. It's all about Jesus. And that's what it's got to be. Instead of allowing David to give him a house, God turned everything around and gave David something. I've got something even greater than this, David. You were a shepherd boy, now you are king. You've been partaker of God's rest, and God's peace, God's power, you know, God's victory. And God tells David, I'm going to build you a house. And it's not just a one of stones here in this place. It's not just going to be your son. It's going to be something that lasts forever. Sometimes God says no to our dreams and plans and when he does, it's not to defeat us or discourage us, it's actually to show us that actually he's got something better. Do we believe that? God has something better. When you think that would be the thing I really want, God says, well, well I mean, we're prepared to trust God and say, I'm going to hold on to you then. That's why when we sing that song, Jesus is enough for me, do we really mean it? 
If you have witnessed the death or the delay of some of your dreams and desires, would you take time to look at the Lord and see what he has done for you and to see where he has placed you? I believe God has placed you here for the time being. What did God say to Abraham when he said, no, I can't serve you, Lord, what, who am I kind of thing? God says, what's in your hand? A staff. He said, well, you're going to serve me with using what is in your hand. That's where it begins. Look at the Lord. Rejoice and learn to be content that this is where God is... You know, there's no point in saying, well, why wasn't I like a Billy Graham? Yes, you're not. You don't have to be like anybody else. You are unique and special and God wants to use you. Amen? Let me tell you the story about the Clark family from Scotland. Don't know if you know this story. It's true, true events. Clark family, husband and wife, had nine children. <coughs> dreamt of emigrating to the USA. What they want to do that for, I don't know. <laughs> they struggled, they scrimped, and they saved, and they finally managed to accumulate enough money and obtain all the paperwork they needed to take the trip and begin their new life in America, in a new land. Ship reservations were made, the family was ecstatic. And then, tragedy struck. Seven days before they were to leave, their youngest son was bitten by a dog. Didn't seem too serious. The doctor stitched him up. He was okay. Tragedy was, the doctor hung a yellow sign outside the, the clerk's front door. The yellow sign in those days meant, you know, don't come anywhere near. It's a quarantine area. Because there was a small chance that actually the boy had contracted rabies from this bite from an unknown dog. They would have to stay where they are. Their ship was to sail in a week and the family was to be quarantined for two weeks. They had to stay behind as their ship and their dreams sailed off into the sunset. The father was so outraged he broke out of the house and he went down to the pier shaking his fist, his fist cursing and swearing how unjust and unfair things had been he was furious at God frustrated with his son and he stomped around in a foul mood and eventually went home and stayed where he was put a few days later Message came that on the 15th of April, the very ship that was supposed to take them to a new life had sunk. The Titanic had gone down, taking with, him, with it over 1,500 lives. Hearing that news, Mr. Clark's attitude instantly changed. He enthusiastically hugged his son. <laughs> he prayerfully thanked God where he was furious before. The tragedy 
turned out into a triumph. There are some people here who I have known over the years, you've had dreams and desires from God from what you'd like to do and things haven't worked out the way you'd like them to be. Will we accept that actually in the whole scheme of things, God is not a spoil sport. He has your best in mind. Oh, if I could change things, I would love to be able to prevent you and your family going through certain circumstances, but I can't. Things have happened. And we've all been places and we've had desires and we've had broken dreams and we've made foolish decisions, all sorts of things. And actually, it's not worked out the way we thought it was. And we thought God was leading us and actually God says, well, I've got a different plan. You may be disappointed with the way their life has turned out, but I challenge you to look in the face of our God we partake of this communion and say, Lord, I want to be content in you. I want to be happy in you. I want to be like David because the rest of David's life, the rest of that chapter is about David's devotion where he actually comes in a way and, you know, sets his heart upon God and says, oh, sovereign Lord, you have done so much. He acknowledges his own unworthiness, but he accepts God has a better plan. And we pray it from time to time, don't we? We say, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. Are we prepared to accept that God has got something better for us? Maybe it hasn't worked out, and I need to move on into communion. For those early disciples, they, they must have been confused. They must have thought to themselves, boy, you know, we thought he was going to be the Messiah and now he's dead. They hadn't joined up the dots with everything God had said in three days. They will destroy this temple and I will raise it, raise it again. That's what Jesus did. And so I want us to take of this bread and of this wine and we recognise that actually plans don't always work out the way God, uh, the way we want them to, but they do work out the way God wants them to. I wonder if I could have some servers and the worship band come and join me.